Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week we will discuss a topic either related to science or from a scientific or reasoned viewpoint. Most weeks I'll have a special guest with relevant experience on the topic and hopefully we'll all learn something. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Don't bother telling me the pros and cons. You got nothing in this world I So before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about the site theironkiwi.com. This site sells art to help support a person who is very important to me and her fight with Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is an inherited genetic disorder that causes the progressive breakdown of nerve cells of the brain. It deteriorates a person's physical and mental abilities during their prime working years. HD has no cure and is ultimately fatal. While most charity sites ask for donations, we are asking you to help support by purchasing art. The site has direct buy options, monthly raffles, and occasional auctions. All art is produced by Carrie Dykes and her friends and family to include me. Proceeds are split between covering materials for the artists, donations to the Huntington's Disease Association of America, and directly supporting Carrie, who was diagnosed with HD six years ago and is no longer able to work. So if you have a moment, please check out theironkiwi.com. We are uploading new art every week to include paintings, jewelry, wind chimes, and anything else we can come up with. Thanks. All right, this week we are going to be discussing what it means to be a free country, aspects of the First Amendment to include free speech, the right to assemble, and what these rights protect. More importantly, what they don't protect. Here with me this week is Eric Knight, who received his degree in history and teaches history, social science, government, and technology to high school students in California. In this first segment, we'll get to know a bit about Eric and his background. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Eric Knight, a good friend of mine who I've known for uh, for a few years. How are you doing, Eric? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, so before we start getting into the topic matter, I just kind of like to talk to my guests and, and find a little about who they are and, and stuff. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, um, I'm a teacher. Uh, right now I am teaching middle school technology and media, uh, but that's not really my field of expertise. My, my uh, training and my background is in history and social science. Uh, and in my path to come into where I'm at, I've taught it all. Um, I've taught geography, um, U.S. history, world history, government, economics, uh, and sociology. Uh, I've I taught government and economics for three years. Um, that's that was my preferred one. That's what the one I really enjoyed. And uh, so, how did you get into teaching in general? I guess, and and what brought you to the social sciences and history? Well. Um, through my years, I worked a lot of manual labor jobs. Um, it was something that I didn't really enjoy. And at one point, I found myself delivering pizzas. Uh, not the most glamorous field, but it's work. And uh, in that work, I was working with a lot of high school age kids, juniors and seniors. And it was something that I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed my time working with kids that age. And the thought occurred to me, what kind of work can I do where I can work with kids of that age? And uh, teaching seemed to be a really good fit. I've always been a huge politics nerd. You know that. Also, Definitely. just a, a big fan of history. Teaching history seemed to be a, a perfect fit for me. So that's what I started to do. Excellent. So 
one of the reasons behind me starting this podcast is really starting to see an issue with uh, uh, people in the in the community and stuff just having a really hard time understanding reason and logic and using the arguments. And I'm curious, do you think this is a problem in our schools or is this something that develops later on or what do you think? Um, you know, I do think it's a problem that begins with schools. Uh, from my experience, um, when I was coming into the teaching field, uh, no child left behind from the Bush era was really predominant. And um, we were kind of shifting our focus to what's common core. I know it's super scary and nobody likes those words, but the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the idea behind common core was that under no child left behind, it was um, a big focus on testing and rote memorization. Whereas common core is supposed to be more, uh, logic, reasoning, that kind of thing like you're talking about. So it, it has been a big problem. I've seen a lot of students who they'll be able to ace a multiple choice test, no problem. But then you ask them to explain why they answered the way they answered and you just get blank stares. So it's, uh, I think it's definitely something that our school system created in terms of uh, failing kids in that way. But it's something that is being addressed and I have seen improvements. That was going to be my next question is, is Common Core has been taught for a few years now. I, I mean, there's, that's a whole nother conversation of itself being Common Core <laughs> yeah, absolutely. and how it's being implemented. But would you say you're definitely seeing an improvement then? In my opinion, yeah, you're right. It really depends on how it is implemented. Um, I feel like if it's implemented poorly, it doesn't benefit kids as much as it could but uh in terms of the possibilities it's there's really a lot of promise in it um it really gives teachers a lot of uh freedom to to really focus on those kinds of ideas of of logic and and trying to get kids to explain their reasoning um a lot of parents have a lot of trouble with that especially in in fields like math where um you're not always trained to talk about why you're doing what you're doing in math. You're taught to just do it. It's really getting into the fundamentals of what are you doing when you're doing math problems and why. Uh, it's kind of a, a cool idea if it's done right. All right. And so kind of looking back on your tenure that, that you've been a teacher, uh, what would you say is the hardest part uh, about being a teacher today in schools? Not swearing in front of children. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> the hardest part is probably... Um, making sure that all of the students are getting what they need. Uh, in 2017, we've got a diversity of students that we actually recognize and we recognize them as needing different things. And so um, you've really, as a teacher, you have to become kind of a, a jack of all trades and that you've got to be able to meet the needs of each individual student. And uh, it's, it's a really tough task. Um, but you know, as I've seen from my experience, if you've got a staff at the school who's really w willing to give teachers the support they need, there's a lot of really cool things you can do with the kids. Yeah, absolutely. I could see that. One thing that I ask everybody that comes on here, I I'm assuming as a teacher, you are familiar with the argument of STEM versus STEAM. <laughs> yep. So let me get your input. Where, where do you fall on that? For me, you know, I think it really depends on what it's being used for. I think in in terms of 
the general populace um, and especially higher education, I think STEM makes more sense. When you are trying to apply it to other things, though, I do think that STEAM um, can make a, a certain amount of sense as well, though. Uh, for instance, if you're applying STEM to, uh, to something like social science, incorporating some sort of artistic uh, application to it, you can get kids to, to kind of explore STEM ideas in a different kind of way than they normally would. You can get them to, to be a little bit more creative with it, which uh, in, at least in my experience, getting kids to be creative allows them to really explore things um, more thoroughly. I kind of had to laugh when you bring up uh, applying it to social studies because I'm not sure if uh, you did it on purpose or not. But my guest last week actually specifically called out social studies as a good place to really uh, to bring stuff together because in his words, uh, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, you know, and that's it's something that I've especially when I was first getting into the field. It's really hard to to make it relevant for a lot of kids. Uh, a lot of them don't care about things that happen 200 years ago. And so incorporating things like science and, and technology into into something like social science, it can help get them excited about it. Uh, especially, like I said, if you're incorporating art as well, social science is a perfect topic for STEAM over STEM because you can really get them to be creative with it. Uh, doing tech projects uh, in my histor history classes was one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, I can see that. And I think the more people I talk to, like uh, I'm definitely on the STEM side. To me, I look at it as a financial and the and the point of what STEM was developed for. But I think there's yeah. definitely a curriculum uh, issue where you should bring things together. And I don't have a problem with that, to, of teaching art with these things. I think my problem is mostly I don't want to see an art program get money under steam that should go to stem oh absolutely yeah um i i agree 100 percent in terms of funding and and organization of of uh of resources stem definitely makes more sense uh art programs shouldn't be getting stem money uh but i've got a kind of different philosophy when it comes to education than a lot of people do i do think that most topics need to incorporate other kinds of, of subjects into them. And so if you're just focused on your sole uh, field, you're going to lose a lot. And so if you're incorporating, especially in something like social science, you have to incorporate science, you have to incorporate math, you have to incorporate English, all of it has to come into it. Um, and so that's kind of my teaching philosophy is is trying to bring all of these other fields and apply them to the social sciences. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we'll start to discuss uh, what it means to be a free country and, and maybe start to get into a little bit of uh, First Amendment. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I cared about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. Hey guys, if you enjoy this podcast, you can support us on Patreon. Link available from our site, dashofscience.com, or our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash dashofscience, where you can also post your comments about the show. 
questions you have for me or my guests, suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want to tell me how I got something totally wrong, like people on the internet love to do, that's cool too. Up next, Eric and I talk about what it means to be a free country, the history of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and what the freedom of speech protects. All right, welcome back, everybody. I am here with Eric Knight, a uh, history teacher and geography teacher. Uh, you're teaching uh, tech now, uh, temporarily, I guess, is what you said earlier. We're originally from Sacramento, and um, I got a call. Hey, we need a, a tech teacher up here. Gotten your name from several people. If you want the job, it's yours. And so we uh, we wanted to jump at the, the chance to get back to Sacramento, where our families are. And uh, so that's what I'm teaching now. Um, but I mean, I'm a tech nerd. <laughs> I love this stuff. So it seemed like a really good fit. And so far, it's been a blast. Well, that's awesome. Let me get back to uh, your time teaching uh, social studies and social science yeah. and history. Uh, one of the things we hear all the time is, you know, well, it's a free country or people complaining when they don't like something. I thought this was a free country. So let's let's sit down and talk about what does it mean to be a free country? You know, that's a, a really complicated question. We could spend hours talking about that. Uh, you know, I've got a, a few different opinions when it comes to this question. I always come back to uh, what makes the United States a unique country. And um, we're not the only free country on the planet. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of countries who have just as much freedom as we have, but we've got this unique aspect to our country in terms of why we were founded and and um, kind of the princi principles behind our foundation. And it really comes down to the idea that that we've got certain rights that do not come from the government itself. The rights we have come from some higher power, whatever you believe that high, higher power is, that's where our rights come from. And because we've got these rights from some higher power, the government cannot take those rights away. And so when, when people say a free country, that's what I really think of is we've got uh, immutable rights where the government is not allowed to take these rights. They cannot touch them. In my opinion, that's the foundation of what it means to be a free country. And do you think that every country that's a free country shares this belief? No. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> for most countries, when they talk about freedom, they talk about um, people being able to do, for the majority of the time, being able to do uh, what makes them happy. Um, generally speaking, in this country and in other countries, um, there's an, an old adage that applies, and that is, uh, I am as free to swing my fist uh, until I hit somebody else's nose. And the idea there is that you're free until your freedoms start affecting other people's freedoms. And so um, in the modern world, that gets a little tricky because a lot of the things that we used to be able to do that we would consider parts of our freedoms we've over the years found out oh hey this is uh, affecting other people in ways that we hadn't thought of uh, things like pollution uh, things like overfishing stuff like that and so people kind of chafe at the idea of having to get a fishing permit but the idea is that 
we've got fish for other people to catch too. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the bigger issues. For me, I kind of look at all of the countries that I see as free and try and come up with a definition because you're right. There is you can't just Google what is a free country and come up with, you know, Webster's dictionary, this is what free country means. But yeah. what I what I kind of take from it is in every free country the public has some form of control over their governance, over who the representatives are, over their laws, and they mm -hmm. are given a set of rights. You say it's a higher power. I'm going to call it a document. In our case, it's the Bill of Rights, because mm -hmm. without that Bill of Rights, you know, I kind of argue and this is this kind of goes a little on the on the deep philosophical edge is I don't agree that there are inalienable rights to human beings only because that didn't start to come as even a conversation until we evolved socially enough to have, uh, you know, not be able to worry about things going on that we could discuss these things. So there's not, you know, if you break down humanity and break us out of these uh, organized governments and societies that we have, we go back to tribal law, you know, nature doesn't care about our inalienable rights we're gonna <laughs> die you know what i'm saying so those are kind of man-made in my opinion well it's funny that you you mentioned that because i uh, having my background in social science i uh, the the idea of inalienable rights generally comes from uh from john locke and the idea was that human beings have a certain level of natural rights where if you were in nature without any other people what would you be able to do um, according to John Locke, you would be able to feed yourself. <laughs> you would be able to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it, but the idea is that there are natural rights that human beings have that without other human beings, everyone would have these rights. Uh, they come with being a sentient being, uh, I differ with you a little bit in in the idea that you don't have rights in nature. You absolutely do. Uh, nature doesn't care, but uh, you still have you have the right to govern your own affairs in nature. Um, sometimes stuff happens, but overall you're able to do what you need to do to take care of yourself, and that's kind of the foundation of human rights and of natural rights is being able to to take care of yourself that's definitely an interesting take and 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 i can see where you're coming from that and obviously where you know john Locke, who's probably a smarter guy than i am in these things but uh you know i, I think that there's also that difference between or maybe a proper definition of what rights are because i absolutely agree in that situation you have the right to i guess have an opportunity to feed yourself but that doesn't mean that you're going to be successful at it and that's not yeah. necessarily a violation of those rights so to speak so when we apply this to countries and oh humans have the right to uh clean water to being able to feed themselves to health care you know that's yeah. where it kind of gets squiggly for me i guess yeah it's um <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that uh with with the U.S. Constitution, we've got kind of a weird situation where there's an amendment that a lot of people really don't ever reference, and um, most people don't really know it's there. If we look at the Ninth Amendment, um, the Ninth Amendment says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people which is really complicated way of saying, hey guys, we listed all these rights in the Bill of Rights, but that doesn't mean this is all there is. So 
when we talk about what that means, it gets a little complicated. What rights do we do we have that aren't listed in the Bill of Rights? Um, it's tricky. <laughs> Some people would uh, would say that healthcare might need to be in there. Um, it's it's something that it's hard to argue either way. It's uh, it's hasn't been well defined enough to uh, to really argue. But in a uh, an example of a Ninth Amendment right would be education. Everyone, I don't think there's anybody who would argue that you don't have a right to an education in the United States. Uh, you won't find that in the Constitution, but that's covered by the Ninth Amendment. Yeah, I think the argument comes into play with this with education and other things is, again, what it means to have a right to. Does it mean that you have the opportunity to pay for it? Does it mean that everybody should be given it for free? And those are the things that are you know, when they're not defined in, in this piece of paper for us being the bill of rights. And that's where the argument comes down because when it, like you said, like, okay, there are these other rights that we might have, but when they're not listed in that document, they become subjective and things that we can argue. The only thing we have that we know for sure are things that are written down. And even then, you know, people take, uh, their, how they read it to be, you know, that that's argument in and of itself in, in the Supreme court. Yeah, absolutely. That was, when uh, when the Bill of Rights was actually first being proposed and being written, there were a lot of founders who said that the Bill of Rights was a mistake. Um, a lot of them argued that if you write down the rights that we have, that limits them. And so that's kind of, if I'm following you right, it, that's kind of what you're saying here is we've only got the rights that we have written down. If we haven't written it down, how do we know that we have that right? Um, as smart as the founders were, they kind of, they went against that idea. They, they thought that there's a lot of rights that people should have that they just hadn't thought of at the time. They hadn't thought, well, we need to write this down. So it's like a lot of the, this topic, it, it can be a little tricky. I think one thing that we can both agree on, though, is where those rights end is when you start impeding on other people's rights. But, you know, that that brings in the argument, like, when is your right to do something superseded by somebody else's right to not have you do that? Obviously, you, yeah. you can't punch somebody in the face. But, you know, we start talking about noise ordinances or, you know, limits on how high your truck can be raised and stuff like that. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It's just kind of, you know, that, that, that little stuff. But I, that's why when I'm defining what it means to be a free country, I, I skip that stuff out of there and remove that and say, you know, you have the right to have some form of control over the people representing you, of the laws that govern you, and, you know, this list of rights that the government itself can't infringe upon. And, and that's it. That's what it means to be a free country in, in you know, my take. Yeah, and that absolutely makes sense. Um, I I think we do get into a little bit of trouble when uh, when we start thinking about um, are we a free country or not with uh, with some of the things the government has done over the years. Uh, it's it's not as black and white as we like to think of it. Um, sometimes the government does things that uh, that it probably shouldn't have done, and so in terms of being a free a free country, we've really got to ask ourselves who are we talking about being free? Um, you know our history pretty well. You know there's been several groups of people who, who haven't always been able to share in that freedom. Um, 
but that's kind of my favorite thing about having the country and, and the founding that we have is we've always got this opportunity to to work to make it better to uh to make it more perfect you know and i think that's a perfect example of what i was talking about earlier is you're absolutely right and even now there are still groups of people who aren't sharing in the rights that they should be and that's kind of back if there's this you know higher power granting this authority it really doesn't matter what we say that is because if us as a society as a government doesn't accept that and write that down on a piece of paper saying yes that's true i mean they mm -hmm. weren't getting those rights yeah yeah you know the the idea behind it is that uh is that you're we're constantly working towards it um we're constantly working towards being better uh we're not there yet but uh it's a promise that you're constantly working to, to fulfill. Um, it, that's like I said, that's kind of the cool thing about this country is that 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 idea of constantly working to get better is in our founding documents. Absolutely. And I think the important thing to take away from this is like the, the idea that any regulation is in contention with the idea that this is a free country is just not correct. You have to realize that what you do affects the other people in your community. And that's why that's the basis of why we have regulations. Obviously, the government's, you know, ran by human beings and human beings are sometimes corrupt or make mistakes, etc. But just the idea that there is regulation does not mean that we are not a free country. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can't have a free country without regulating certain things. Um, you've, you get a different kind of tyranny if you've got a government that doesn't regulate anything. Exactly. And one of the misconceptions I've seen in the public, something that you mentioned earlier, is the U.S. is not the only free country in the world. I was reading a, uh, a survey from Freedom House called Freedom in the World 2017. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, I've heard of it. But according to this, there are 86 free countries, 59 of them are partially free, which is a little bit of subjective meaning, and 50 that are not. So the vast majority of the countries in our world have some form of freedom or are some form of free country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's been the direction of history uh, since the founding of the United States has been towards democracy and democratization. The idea is giving people more control, and um, it's been shown to work pretty well uh yes winston churchill said uh democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others so <laughs> <laughs> you know it kind of is in line with with what i like to say a lot is that every every uh uh method of governing and organizing people works great until you add people <laughs> yes absolutely all right, so we kind of covered what it means to be a free country, and, and you know, there is definitely some subjectivity to it. It's a little wibbly-wobbly in there, but uh, I kind of want to talk about specifically the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is a very, very broad amendment with lots of aspects that, you know, that I don't think we can cover all of them, but there's a few main points that I think are commonly misunderstood that I kind of like to talk about. And, uh, you know, obviously yeah. the, the First Amendment and the freedom of speech has got to be the biggest one that I think people just have a have a total misunderstanding for. What, what's uh, what's your take? Oh, on absolutely. That? Well, um, in terms of the freedom of speech, uh, there's there's a lot of again, it's complicated. <laughs> That's my favorite thing to tell students uh, when we're talking about any social science topic. I say if if you can't think of an answer to any question I ask you, tell me it's complicated and you'll be right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in terms of the First Amendment, 
the basic idea is that the government can't establish any laws telling you that you can't say something. Um, since then, it's been uh, expanded some. Um, the 14th Amendment made it so that all of the amendments in the Constitution before that, all of the Bill of Rights, all those rights that you have, no longer apply just to the federal government. They also apply to state governments um, as of the 14th Amendment. So not only do you have those freedoms from the federal government, you also have them from state governments. Uh, in terms of speech, the idea is that you've got the freedom to say whatever you want so long as um, and not face uh, governmental um, uh, consequences for that speech. Uh, that's basically it. Uh, if you work for a private company, they can fire you for what you say. It may not be right, but they can do it. Exactly. And I think, uh, first of all, I want to mention that I just learned something new. So I know that the First Amendment specifically states Congress, which is federal government, and I knew that it applied to state governments, but I did not know that it was a 14th Amendment that made that uh, made that what it is. So thanks for uh, teaching me something today. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, But I think that that is really important, that first line. I mean, obviously it's state governments too, but it says Congress shall make no law. And I find it interesting that it is the very first part of the First Amendment and nobody pays attention to it. Well, you know, there's there are some people who would argue that that the First Amendment should probably be broadened. Um, there are people who would argue that that you shouldn't be able to uh, to fire somebody within the private sphere for their speech for well, for political speech rather um, that hasn't been interpreted that way in the courts, but there's been that argument at least since uh, since the 1960s, if not earlier than that. Um, you saw a lot of people protesting and a lot of people facing social consequences for that kind of thing. And um, so it's it's one of those things that depending on your point of view, you might think that maybe the First Amendment should be broadened, but as it is read legally, as far as I know, um, it's in terms of just government. Uh, you, you're free from governmental consequences for your speech. Uh, public consequences, um, you can say whatever you want, but people can hate you for it. <laughs> That's that really is right. And you know, I go back and forth. And like, I see people make a post on Facebook that is, you know not necessarily the best thing, and then they get fired for it. And I'm like, you know, well, that's BS. But when you think about it, that you're representing the companies you work for, especially like on Facebook, where it says, you know, I work for this place, and that potentially could have a negative effect on that company, which in turn has a negative effect on the people who own and work for that company. And then once again, is your right to say something more important to their right to, you know, having a, a living, you know, having making sure their money gets in and all that stuff. Uh, but I think that's a good spot to take a break. When we come back, we'll finish up talking about what freedom of speech does not protect and get a little more into some of the other rights uh, granted us by the First Amendment. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. 
Hope you guys are still enjoying the podcast. If you'd like to watch a live video recording without any edits, you can check us out on twitch.tv slash physicistchris. You can also watch us live record every weekend, usually on Friday evenings, but check our Facebook page for notices. You can also join us on our Discord channel to chat all week long. A link is available on our site and on our Facebook. Up next, Eric and I talk about things the freedom of speech does not protect you from, like getting punched in the face. We also talk about the freedom of assembly, standing in traffic, and cyberbullying. All right, so we spent some time talking about the First Amendment, and one thing that I kind of, I'd like to get your take on this, because, you know, I, I do fancy myself a bit of a student of history, but one thing that I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an expert by any means. The First Amendment, like, is really paramount. We consider it to be so important, but I find it interesting to note that it's an amendment. Mm-hmm. Which means it wasn't included in the in the in the original draft of the Bill of Rights. I know some of the amendments came pretty close on the heels. Can you t- talk about that a little bit? Well, the Bill of Rights is is the first ten amendments. Uh, so there's there's always been this a little misconception that the the Bill of Rights uh, is an original part of the Constitution, but it's not. Uh, the Bill of Rights was that group of first ten amendments where they. People who didn't really like the idea of the Constitution, who said that it gave the government too much power, uh, decided that we needed some sort of check on that power. And that's what the Bill of Rights is, is pretty much an appeasement to those people telling them, okay, we've got this check on governmental power where um, we've got safeguards. Uh, So with a Bill of Rights, that's that's really what it comes down to is a safeguard on uh, on how powerful our government can be. So the Bill of Rights in itself, all of it is amendments. There were nothing considered inalienable rights that were written into the original Constitution. Exactly. Well, okay. it, that's that's not entirely true. Uh, the Constitution, in in its original speech, says that we have rights. It doesn't define them, though. So the Bill of Rights was kind of an idea of setting sound down some foundational definition of here's what those rights are. You know, I love that I that I'm learning so much here with you today because you know I come to these things and I do my research and I have a pretty good idea of what we're going to talk about. But to have somebody come on that's able to teach me also, like I feel like that's even more that the listeners are going to get from that. So I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. So other issues in the First Amendment besides freedom of speech. Uh, well, actually, let's stick with freedom of speech for a little bit because I kind of want to talk about what freedom of speech doesn't cover. So obviously we mm-hmm. talked about it doesn't cover the public life. It doesn't cover you getting fired from your job, getting banned from social media, uh, for being punched in the face, though there are other laws that cover <laughs> that. Uh, but it also there's other things that have been decided by the Supreme Court that are not protected speech. Things like yeah. what they call fighting words. Uh, can, do you, can you tell me what fighting words are or what that refers to? Well, fighting words is the idea that um, one of the parts of speech that is not protected is inciting violence. Um, you're not allowed to try and use your speech to get other people to act violently. Um, so part of that, is, when it comes down to it, uh, that's the reason why if you see um, those those videos on YouTube of, of some crazy terrorist person talking on YouTube, uh, they do not have the legal right to try and get other people to act violently. Uh, 
that is is one of the limits on freedom of speech. And uh, and I think that that probably goes further into not just violence, but also just disturbing the peace in general, which covers things like not shouting bomb on a plane or things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, and not shouting fire when there's not a fire in a theater, things like that. Okay. And then, you know, another big thing that it doesn't cover is, uh, I think it's called obscenity and pornography, uh, which... <laughs> uh, I found a what they call a I think it's pronounced Hicklin test. Are you familiar with that? Um, no, I'm not. So the Hicklin test is a way to define obscenity. In essence, it says uh, to deprave or corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall. So it's kind of like if it's something that could that could uh, I guess encourage somebody to do something like I guess rape pornography would be a good example of this though kind of yeah. you can find that so if if it's going to incite something in somebody who's able to be incited and they are able to get their hands on it it's it's, it's under the obscene and it's not necessarily covered by the first amendment you know it, this topic is one of my favorite quotes uh, from from court proceedings there was a I believe he was a supreme court justice who was asked to define pornography and he said i don't know how to define it but i know it when i see it <laughs> that, yeah, <laughs> so uh it, it that's one of those things where um that's a little more recent than 1896 i, I want to say that was in the 60s uh when um oh my mind is going blank on on the court case but uh Pornography's always been one of those things that's been really hard to define because there are ways of of showing naked people where it is definitely not considered pornography. So it's a, a difficult line to draw. But um, like the Supreme Court justice said, there there's a line there, and I know it when I see it. <laughs> and that makes things really hard to document. I know that the obscenity and the pornography stuff that I was talking about is uh, Rosen versus United States, and that dates back to 1896. So this isn't a new argument by any means. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been one of those arguments that people have been having as long as there's been pornography. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure has been around since people were painting on walls. <laughs> Literally, yes. So uh, some of the other things with freedom of speech. Now, freedom of speech, uh, it doesn't cover defamation of people. And while it does cover uh, defamation of public officers' official conduct, it only does so if you believe what you're saying to be true. So you can't make statements about somebody acting in their official capacity, say a lot of people saying stuff about Donald Trump. I find it interesting that there is actually, if somebody were to pursue it there, potential there for violations that would not be protected by the first amendment what do you what's your thoughts on that yeah like you said it really depends on what the person saying it believes um if if they legitimately can show that they believe what they're saying or if you can't prove that they don't believe it then there's really no way of uh of proving defamation um so really the the bar for defamation is being able to prove that that the person saying it knows that they're spreading false information. Yeah, that is definitely going to be the hard part there. And it's probably why it doesn't get, uh, you know, I guess tracked down as much by, by the government. They allow people to say stuff online and, and for the most part, nobody gets in trouble for it. Cause you know, how do you, you don't want to spend all that money trying to investigate something that really you can't prove one way or the other. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those things where it's really difficult to prove. One thing I find interesting and sad uh, about the First Amendment is that it protects hate speech that is not inciting violence, which it's not just, you know, I was looking at this, and this has been protected and upheld by the Supreme Court in, in 1969, in 1992, and in 2011 with regards to uh, the church that was picketing uh, a soldier's funeral with, with homophobic slurs and stuff on there. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's a I mean, I, I know you don't think hate speech is a good thing, but do you think it's good that that speech is protected? You know, that's one of those tricky topics where uh, hate speech is absolutely deplorable. It's it's one of those things where there's nobody, well, nobody rational who's going to defend those uh, those yahoos picketing soldiers' uh, funerals. But on the other hand, who defines what hate speech is? And so that's kind of the the tricky part is if you're going to start passing laws to to outlaw certain kinds of speech who's going to be defining what's illegal um who's going to de be defining what you can and can't say and so um i really see the court's take on this as being something where i don't think they really have a choice that People can say horrific things, and as long as they're not inciting people to violence, uh, the courts really gotta gotta err on the the side of of uh, that First Amendment and make sure that we're protecting that. So you think it's really just a slippery slope that that the uh, Supreme Court is really just actively avoiding uh, because you know the, the the negatives of what comes from hate speech isn't worth what we could potentially lose as a society if we went down that road. Yeah, I, I think it's something like that where um, it's it. I think a lot of them really don't see it as their job of deciding what should and should not be said. Uh, so long as you're not physically harming somebody. Um, now that it does get kind of tricky because you can cause psychological harm with with speech. And so, is there a certain level of hate speech where where maybe it's not protected? Um, maybe in terms of like online cyberbullying or something like that which with the age group of kids that i'm teaching that's something that we're always concerned about at what point does it stop becoming protected speech at what point does it become something uh something dangerous that is interesting that you bring that up because i have always been a proponent of you protect children from bullying by ensuring that your child has, you know, quote unquote, thick skin. But of late, my my ideas behind this have really started to change, especially when it comes to cyberbullying, because it used to be, you know, you go to school and you get bullied at school, then you go home, you whatever you do. But now it's 24 seven. It's always there. And that's got to have a, a huge psychological you know, effect. Well, and kids as, as young as 10 and 11 are having cell phones. And if somebody gets their cell phone number, they're going to be receiving those kinds of messages day and night and they can't escape it. And, uh, it's, it's really something that, that modern life has really got to deal with. Uh, we, we haven't found a good solution to it yet. And, uh, I hesitate to say that the courts should get involved, but it, on the other hand, we've got children who are literally dying. Um, so it's one of those things where, is something we really got to think about. It makes me wonder almost, we already have the uh, the 
case there where if your speech incites violence, then it's no longer protected. Could you, I mean, I hate to wait until it goes as far, but if your speech causes somebody to commit suicide, do you think that falls under that? And should we be handling that, you know, with children that way? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's uh it's definitely something that we as a society really need to to stop and consider um because like you said it there's a certain point where it, if you're inciting somebody to act violently upon themselves is that inciting violence um it's something we we as a society definitely need to consider yeah unfortunately i don't think it's going to be something that you and i can solve here on this podcast <laughs> no, that's uh, that's above my pay grade there. <laughs> Definitely. So we talked about uh, we talked a lot about freedom of speech because I think that is probably one of the most understood and misquoted uh, of the aspects of First Amendment. But I also want to talk about the freedom to peacefully assemble, and I think mm -hmm. that one's often misunderstood, and people I think give it more power than it actually has. So what do you think of that? Yeah. You know I. I feel like that one used to have more power than it does now. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a radical on this one. I, I think that this is one of those rights that has been uh, overregulated. In terms of legally, you have a right to assemble, uh, given that um, the government is okay with you assembling, pretty much, uh, which is kind of a a weird place to be at. Um, the government is able to put restrictions on when and where you you are assembling. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things where technically you have a right to assemble, but anymore, what does that really mean when governmental institutions are able to to decide how that manifests manifests itself? Uh, it's uh, a right that is really not well understood in these days. Yeah, and I I thought that too, and I and that it's been overregulated. But I thought it was a recent occurrence. And when I started looking at a lot of these things, are fifty to eighty years ago that some of this stuff was enacted by you know Supreme Court rulings. Like one such being that in most places in the U.S., I, I dare say all, but I don't know that for sure, so I won't. Uh, the organizer of a protest is required to apply for a permit from their local law enforcement, and that's been yeah. in effect since uh, uh, Cox first New Hampshire in 1941. I mean, we're talking damn near 80 years ago. Yeah, and well, it goes back further than that. Uh, this really became an issue with the First World War. Um, there were a lot of a lot of people who were really unhappy with the United States getting into that war. And um, this was one of those rights that really suffered at that time. Uh, it was um, Woodrow Wilson at the time who a lot of people felt like he turned on his own allies and um, was really pushing to get people to stop criticizing this conflict. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely not a, a new argument it's definitely not something that really recent but i feel like more recently it's been um more heavily regu regulated than it used to be uh getting a permit is one thing but then it's uh it's become kind of prohibitive you've in the modern day a lot of the times you've got to pay fees you've got to pay a, a whole bunch of different uh you've got to take in, into account a lot of different things um, when you want to have some sort of public uh, gathering. And um, 
for a lot of people, it's become prohibitive. Uh, so it's it's really become an idea where it's hard to say that we we still have that right um, when, like I said, when the government is able to tell you, you that you can and or cannot exercise that right. It is a really interesting dilemma, you know, because really what you're saying is how do we regulate civil disobedience? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, civil disobedience is something that that is not legal. Uh, you have no legal right to to disobey laws. But then on the other hand, um, it gets attention. So just because you don't have a right to do it doesn't mean that it's not kind of a, a big part of American life. Uh, Martin Luther King was a big proponent of civil disobedience. Uh, he He felt that getting out there and purposefully breaking laws, purposefully breaking um, assembly laws uh, was was something that he was willing to do. It was something that really made a point. Uh, when you got police officers out attacking uh, civilians, it makes for a, a bad scene on the news. Um, we've seen that here in Sacramento with the uh, UC Davis protests back with uh, Occupy. And... Um, it, it really puts uh, those institutions in a tough spot and can really um, give those those people a platform to uh, to really get their message out. Yeah, and I think that's what people really need to know and understand is that you're you're taking it upon you to do this. You're taking the risks because our law currently states that the government has the right to to restrict time, place, and manner as long as they do it within certain rules. And if you don't follow those you're going to get arrested. And if you still want to do it, that's fine. But understand that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've got to understand that, uh, that when you practice civil dis disobedience, you're really, <laughs> if you don't go to jail, you're one of the lucky ones. Um, it's, it's something you have really have to consider when you're going to take action like that. Um, if you believe in the cause enough, you might think it's worthwhile, um, but it's something you, you really need to be aware of. And I think that's what's happening a lot out there and kind of really why I wanted to talk about this in this episode and hopefully that it can get out there is, is I think people are under the impression that they have the right to stand in the middle of a freeway and block traffic, you know, and so that they think their rights are legitimately being violated when they are removed forcibly after being asked to move you know and they're arrested for it like if you want to stand there that's i mean i personally think that that's a poor way to do it and a dangerous way to do it but that's your prerogative understand what you're doing and i don't think they do yeah a, a lot of people don't understand that um on the other hand it there's a certain point where um where the reaction to that can get kind of out of hand if you're if you're blocking traffic the police are able to uh, to arrest you, but a lot of the time we see kind of an overreaction to that kind of thing, where we see police acting violently towards people. We see motorists who are trying to run people down, and so you you don't have a right to be in traffic, but on the other hand, motorists don't have a right to run you down, <laughs> and police officers don't have a right to. Uh, to brutalize you unnecessarily. 
Yeah, and I think there's a there's a line there. Like I if you are blocking traffic and you get hit by a car, that's on you. But when it's a person that is deliberately trying to hit you, that's a completely different scenario and that's yeah. aggravated assault or attempted murder or however you want to view it. Yeah, most countries uh the the motorist has the right of way. Um in the United States if there's a pedestrian in the road, they have the right of way, uh, regardless of whether they should be there or not. And uh, if you don't try to avoid them, that's on you. Yeah, absolutely. But really, the 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 point is to to just people for people to make decisions that are educated and understand what they're doing. If you have a cause like these people do, where they want to, you know, be heard, that is definitely a way to be heard. Just do it responsibly and understand what you're doing, and then I guess do it. You know, and and, and the consequences are are on you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, understanding your rights and understanding the limitations and uh, and what you can and can't do with your rights, uh, it, it's a powerful tool. And um, being able to to push those boundaries and and try and uh, make change by using those rights uh is is something that uh has really been a powerful thing in our country uh it's it's something that that i hope to see continue yep i think that's definitely accurate and one last thing that i kind of wanted to bring up it, it didn't really fall into the topic is something that i've always found interesting is we always talk about in the constitution there being a separation between church and state and i'm sure you know that this doesn't come from the constitution itself yeah, it's uh, the separation of church and state. Um, it it originates from the First Amendment, uh, where Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, the The idea be behind the separation of church and state, however, comes from an extra explanation from uh, from Thomas Jefferson, who uh, he wrote about how there needs to be a wall he he described it as a wall separating the activities of church from the activities of state uh it, it's not something that um that has always been applied evenly uh it's it's gone back and forth over the year but it's over the years but it's uh, generally been been universally held that there is a certain level of of distance that uh, government needs to be from religion. Uh, you cannot have a, a religious organization controlling government. And on the other hand, you can't have government controlling uh, religious institutions. And I think that really was the intent. And I absolutely agree with that. And But we get into the problem now where it's like perception. It was like, oh, does it look like some state co court, you know, in some state is is supporting Christianity over another religion because the Ten Commandments are in front of the courthouse or whatever, and, and we get bogged down and stuff like that. And I'm not sure how important that is. What do you think about that? You know, I'm I'm kind of of mixed opinion on on that. Uh, I I do think it's important to to make sure that we to really protect that boundary. Um, we really do not want to have uh, religious law taking taking hold um so it's it's something that we really need to be careful about uh with the symbolism of a lot of those things on the other hand is 
fighting over that something that uh, a mural on the wall or something, is it really something that's that's worth your time? Um, and it's, you know, I don't really know where I fall on that. I, I think it can be kind of a distraction um, from things that are more important. But on the other hand, I, I really don't want to see courts making decisions based on religion. And if uh, you've got an institution where it's literally printed on the wall, uh, it's it's hard to argue that that's not going to influence them. That is a good point. You know, it makes you wonder if you're passing, you know, this list of Ten Commandments on your way into the court, who is it that you're going to see up there? Are you seeing a judge who is being, you know, quote unquote, blind justice and, and unbiased? Or are you going to see a person that's, you know, very into Christianity and, and, and Christian morality, which isn't always the same as, you know, the, the country's morality? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a... That's an interesting spot to leave it there. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to talk about with uh, with being a free country, the Constitution, First Amendment, anything? Oh man, no. I think I think I'm uh, I'm good with that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you again for joining me tonight for this conversation. I greatly appreciate your insight and your knowledge that you bring to us uh, with your background. Uh, and hopefully, we can have you on again in the future if we come up with another topic that's within your realm of uh, knowledge. Oh, anytime, Chris. It's always a pleasure. All right. Have a good night. All right. You too. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. Well, that's our show. Please tune in next week for our next episode of A Dash of Science. Remember to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science for updates, ways to interact with the show, and hints at future episode topics. Also, please remember to check out theironkiwi.com if you're interested in purchasing some custom art for a good cause. Lastly, please remember that we all have value outside of our political and religious beliefs. Polarization is a problem in our country, and the only way to solve that problem is to continue to communicate and respect our fellow human beings, even when they aren't respecting us. I hope you all have a wonderful week. As always, our music this week was provided by Brad Sucks. With permission, if you like his music, you can check him out at bradsucks.net.